So there's this really simple, basic sentence, but a really utterly profound statement that's said by one of the characters, one of the people, um, in Maria Hornbacher's novel called Wasted. The book was published uh, back in 1998, and it tells Maria's story of her long journey uh, struggling with anorexia and bulimia. When I first read the book, she became quickly one of my favorite authors because her writing is really raw and really vulnerable, um, but at the same time really witty and really poignant. Um, and so for a long time she didn't write anything, and I was really excited when about six years ago she started writing books again. She, read, she wrote a novel and then went on to write two more books kind of of a more autobiographical nature. Uh, Madness, which she released in 2009, tells the story of her diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And then a year later, she released a book called Saint, um, which is a recovery handbook for people in 12-step programs who are concurrently dealing with both addiction and with mental health disorders. So I first read Wasted, Maria's first memoir, when I was in high school. And at the time, I was in the midst of my own very long journey in struggling with eating disordered behavior. Um, a journey which, like so many of the struggles and experiences that we um, go through throughout our lives, uh, never really completely go away, right? Um, but something which we can, um, in some sense, gain some control over and begin to overcome. So in this scene, Maria and her friend Jane have just gotten out of a residential treatment center, and they're going out to eat at a restaurant for the first time. Um, and they're beginning to practice saying out loud, both for themselves but for other people, to hear something that they've been feeling within themselves but have been too afraid to express and to put out to the world in a really long time. And so we hear Jane speak this sentence, I'm hungry. For Maria and for Jane, for me and for many of us, we have these sentences, we have these words that become the first of many steps on whatever journey it is that we're taking towards healing and towards recovery and towards just learning to love and embrace our whole selves. So we've been talking for several weeks now about vulnerability, what it looks like, what it feels like, how to do it, how to be better at it. And vulnerability, I think, is kind of a popular buzzword right now, which is maybe why we're doing a sermon series on it. Especially here at Urban Village Church, we love some Brene Brown, whose word is vulnerability. Um, and so I found myself resonating with Rich as he preached several weeks ago and talked about how, for some of us, the, our greatest difficulty, the area where we struggle the most, is at the level of being vulnerable and honest with ourselves. Just getting to that point where we can be vulnerable with ourselves. He shared the story of Moses from the Old Testament and Moses' encounter with the presence of God in a burning bush, an encounter that brought, God, that brought Moses face to face with the truth of who he was, which included naming his identity as an Israelite, as well as an Egyptian. And in this story, we hear God speak out loud Moses' true identity when Moses has been too afraid to name that for himself. I also found myself resonating with Chris when he preached just a couple of weeks ago and shared that, like his favorite character on the TV show Arrested Development, he sometimes suffers from this thing called never-nude syndrome when it comes to his relationship with God. About how for a lot of us, we're willing to strip down most of the way and reveal most of ourselves to God. Um, but then if we're honest, there are some parts of our lives and ourselves that we think are too messy or too private 
um, or too sinful to share, even with God. That we'll be vulnerable with God up to a certain point, but if we're honest, there are some things that we would rather God just ignore and leave alone. But in spite of resonating with those things, the Holy Spirit has been convicting me more so than anything this week as I've been preparing to talk about what it looks like and what it feels like to be vulnerable with other people, especially as it relates to the power of prayer together in community. It's made me uncomfortable because, if I'm honest, I really suck at it. Um, and I don't know if that makes me the best person to preach the sermon or the worst person to preach the sermon, but I'm going to preach it anyway. Um, and I suck at it because I have found, if I'm honest with myself, I am not good at all about saying out loud for other people to hear and to know what's going on in the depths of my life. Whether those words that I need to say are, I'm hungry, or whether they're, I'm hurting, I'm lonely, I'm angry, I don't know anymore. Most of us have something that we're feeling within ourselves, but would much rather keep to ourselves than risk sharing those things with anyone else. I, at least, am often not willing to be that vulnerable and that exposed, that naked, in front of other people. Because there's this pressure to present this clean, polished, kind of cookie-cutter version of our lives, where everything is exciting and we're always happy and successful and have got our stuff together all the time. And unfortunately, I think being a Christian often makes that problem worse instead of making that problem better. So I'm comforted when I actually read the Bible, um, when I read that God was always calling not the polished and the successful, but the despised and the powerless. When I see that Jesus was calling not the successful and the powerful to be with him in ministry, but the weak and the broken. This story of the God that we believe was revealed in Jesus Christ is a story about a God who was always working miracles and bringing out salvation through ordinary, flawless, vulnerable people like you and like me. The story of the Bible is that what we often see as weakness, what the world sees as weakness, God can use as a strength if we're willing to be vulnerable enough to offer those parts of ourselves up to God. Sometimes I think that our um, aversion to being vulnerable comes from our tendency to be conflict avoidant, um, which guilty as charged. Um, and I think that that tendency to be conflict avoidant is part of what Matthew is getting at in our scripture passage for today. Um, vulnerability is scary because uh, there's this fear of being misunderstood or labeled or rejected by folks if we're open and honest with them. So we avoid conflict at all costs because it puts us into those situations. But in Matthew's Gospel, if you heard it as Sarah read, the first thing Matthew writes is, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. So not only is Matthew saying don't avoid conflict, but he almost seems to be suggesting that there are times when we should initiate conflict, which makes me even more nervous and afraid. Here's the thing, though. If you follow Matthew's logic throughout the different steps that he outlines, the hope is always reconciliation. The, the, the goal at each step in that process is to make things right and to restore relationship where relationship has been lost. 
Being vulnerable with others, it's true, opens us up to the possibility of getting hurt. But being vulnerable with other people also opens, up to, to, opens us up to, I think, the only true possibility of restoration, of making whole what has been broken, of, being, of making what has been wronged right again. I read this really wonderful blog post uh, this week by a young woman named Sarah Dylan Bauer, and she writes, So when two Christians take their conflict as an opportunity to practice reconciliation, what they do in the church can stand as a visible sign for the whole world of what we believe Christ is doing in the world, an outward and visible sign of a grace that we believe is happening in a broader and more mysterious way. She continues, The bottom line is that Christian community, all community really, is, as St. Benedict said, a school for souls in which we learn not just how to live, but also how to experience abundant life. Jesus knew something that experience has affirmed for me. We understand best and deepest how God loves and forgives when we are, in our limited but growing way, extending that kind of love and forgiveness to others. So speaking our feelings out loud and engaging and leaning into those places of conflict that becomes not, not only an opportunity for us to experience God's grace and reconciliation in our own lives, but also an opportunity to embody God's grace and God's reconciliation for the whole world to see. That also means that we're called to speak out not only when it's our own feelings that have been hurt, but that as a church we're also called to speak out for those voices that have not been heard, those voices that have been silenced and ignored, to lean into those places of conflict as well. Now Matthew is writing to some of the earliest of the Christian communities, to people who are still trying to figure out what Christian community even really means. These early Christians were trying to carve out some kind of place and understanding for themselves as a minority community within the broader culture. So the gospel writers and some of the apostles were just writing to help people figure out how will the community that we have as followers of Jesus Christ look and be different from the other kinds of communities that we've been a part of in the past? How will the life that we have together as Christians set us apart? And Matthew's answer is that what sets us apart and what defines us as Christian community is our commitment to always doing life together, even when that means vulnerability and leaning into conflict that that is worth it to do life together. What would have divided people and fractured relationships in any other kind of community, Matthew is saying, can't be allowed to come between a brother and a sister in Christ. And this is a message that I think our world today desperately needs to hear. Amen? Partially because this community orientation that Matthew is suggesting we model our community around stands in such sharp contrast to the individualistic orientation that most of our world runs and operates in today. In every sphere of our lives, but especially in this American political campaign season, it seems like all of the rhetoric that we hear, and unfortunately sometimes the rhetoric that we use, is us versus them. But the message of our passage from Matthew, and I think the message of the greater whole of Scripture, is that we are stronger together as a community in Christ than we ever could be apart. The body of Christ, Paul tells us later in the New Testament, there can be no us versus them, for we are all one, he writes, in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
But being that kind of people and building that kind of community requires a deep sense of vulnerability and a commitment to being and praying together. It's that vulnerability and that power of prayer that, that's what enables us to be a church without walls, to seek to be a church without walls, a place that honestly addresses issues of systemic racism and white privilege and allows us to cry out for justice both through prayer and through action, actions which somehow become in and of themselves a form of prayer. It's that deep vulnerability and that commitment to praying together that enables us to be a church that is radically inclusive, that acknowledges the ways in which the church has in the past and in many ways continues to exclude and marginalize our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And it's important for us to name that as a church, whether that's Urban Village Church or a church with a capital C, um, that we're not always going to be of one mind and one heart on those issues or any of the other issues that we face as we do life together. And that's okay, but that's actually a good thing for us to lean into relationship with one another despite our differences of opinion. But Matthew's challenge to that early Christian community and to us is to always be committed to life together and to prayer together to be a people of reconciliation and of grace, even in the midst of our conflicts. Matthew then goes on to tell us that the prayers we speak, that the actions we take as a community, have this divine power beyond ourselves in some mysterious way. That we have been given this power as the body of Christ, as a community empowered by the Holy Spirit, to affect change and to transform the very atmosphere of our world through our prayers for one another and our prayers with one another. Um, Y'all know that I love the message translation of the Bible. Um, and the way it reads the second part of our passage from Matthew goes like this. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean that. When two of you get together at, about anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are gathered together because of me, you can be sure I'll be there. I love that, don't you? What you say to one another is eternal. I love that because it reminds us to take seriously not only our own vulnerabilities, but the vulnerabilities of other people to be careful and gentle with our words, recognizing that they have power, but that they also have consequences. And that not only do our prayers compel us forward into action, but that our prayers compel God's very self into action. That God moves at the sound of our voice and God acts in response to our prayers. And also notice what the passage doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, wherever two or three of you are together and you agree about something, I'm there among you. Jesus simply says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, anywhere that happens, I am there among them. And that is good news because that means most of the time Jesus is present with us in the midst of our vulnerability and our conflict and our brokenness. And that's good news because it means Jesus meets us in the midst of our lives as they actually are rather than in the midst of our lives as we might like them to be. So praying with other people, praying for other people, is part of our responsibility as the body of Christ. We're called to intercede on behalf of the world, just as Scripture says that Christ intercedes 
on our behalf. But I think that we often mistake the point of intercessory prayer, or at least leave out a really important part. Because uh, we often think that the only person that we're praying for in intercessory prayer is the other person that we're praying for, something about them or a circumstance that they're in. So we pray, God, would you change that person's heart? God, would you convict that person of what they've done? God, would you please do something about this situation that this person is in? Now, that person's heart might need to be changed. Um, that person might be in a situation where they really need help and for, for God to step in. And it's not bad or wrong to pray for those things. But to intercede in prayer also involves praying for God to change us. And that requires vulnerability. It requires a willingness to open ourselves up to God and for God to point out where sometimes it might be me and my heart that needs change, not the other person. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and we did something called Prayers of the People every Sunday morning in worship. Did anybody else's church do that growing up? Uh, so it was meant to be a time of intercessory prayer. And so we would read aloud the names of people in our congregation who had passed away or been in the hospital over the last week. And we would lift up situations in our city and around the world that had taken place recently. But as I reflected back this week now on that practice, which was really formative for me growing up, I realized that for me, that intercessory prayer was really one-sided. I said amen at the end of that prayer, and I felt as if I had done my duty. What I've come to realize now is that that prayer was meant to be the beginning of my responsibility to those people, not the end of my responsibility to them. So I would pray for persons experiencing homelessness in my city, but I never thought to pray for God to give me a heart for the homeless to be compelled to do anything about it, for God to show me them through God's eyes. I would pray for friends' parents or for friends or for other church members who were in the hospital, but it never compelled me to actually go visit them in the hospital. So prayer is meant to bring about a change in others, and it's meant to bring about a change in the world, but prayer is also meant to bring about a change in us. And for God to be able to do that work, it requires a willingness for God to be present in the midst of our lives together, to enter into life and to community with one another, and to be changed by those encounters. One of my devotional readings that I try to do in the mornings um, is from Oswald Chambers's My Utmost for His Highest. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with that devotional book. And there's a lot in there that I don't agree with theologically, um, but some of the things he writes really hit me in the gut. Um, and one of those is what he has to say about intercessory prayer. He writes, True intercession involves bringing the person or the circumstance that seems to be crashing in on you before God until you are changed by God's attitude toward that person or circumstance. People describe intercession by saying it's putting yourself in someone else's place. That's not true. Intercession is putting yourself in God's place. It is having God's mind and God's perspective. So next week is Palm Sunday. Um, and we're going to begin as we walk through that journey with Jesus, Jesus' last earth, moments on earthly ministry before his arrest, crucifixion, death, and resurrection on Easter morning. I've been thinking through those stories and thinking through all of the events that accompany that time. And I was struck by how many of them involve some form of corporate prayer in community life. 
Um, so in Matthew 17, in the chapter just before our reading for today, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, um, presumably to pray. That's something that Jesus had done frequently throughout his ministries. He would go up on the mountain to pray. And this time he takes three of his disciples with him. And while they're there on the mountain, they have this incredible experience. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And they experience Jesus in all of his divine glory. And the disciples' response to that is such sheer terror that they fall down with their faces on the ground because they're overwhelmed by what they've seen. Later on in Matthew 26, Jesus and his disciples share the Passover meal together. Um, a meal that is centered around ritual and a meal that's centered around prayer. A meal that we're going to remember as we take Holy Communion together this morning. A meal that we're going to recall in people's homes all across this city on Monday, Thursday. And what struck me was that Jesus and his disciples share that meal, even as Judas, who shortly thereafter will betray Jesus, is sitting at the table and sharing the meal with them. Later that same evening, Jesus takes Peter and two of the other disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he can pray. And he asks the disciples to pray and keep watch with him. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow, uh, with, with sorrow to the point of death, Jesus says. Stay here and keep watch with me. And if you remember that story, Jesus comes back to the disciples a couple times throughout the night to check up on them. And you remember what they're, they're doing? They're sleeping. They've fallen asleep. Good job, disciples. Um, but it's there in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prays what I think is perhaps the most vulnerable prayer ever uttered. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection, we almost always find the disciples in a room together. Acts 1.14 tells us they all joined together constantly in prayer. So we find the disciples in their very earliest days living out community together, even in the midst of vulnerability and fear. They're hiding in a room, y'all, because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders and of the Roman leaders. This place where they feel like no one is on their side. It's in that room, it's hidden away in fear where their disciples first encounter the resurrected Jesus in their midst. That's where Jesus comes to meet them. And it's also hidden in that uh, hidden away in that room praying together where the power of the Holy Spirit flows through at Pentecost. So all of these stories, all of these examples from the life and the ministry of Jesus emphasize to us the importance and the power of being in community and of praying together. Praying for one another, praying with one another, especially in our most vulnerable moments. Because it's in that community and it's in those moments of prayer where we find comfort in simply being together in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's also where we find the presence and the peace of Christ himself. That's comforting to me. That the places where Jesus comes and meets us are in those moments of fear and vulnerability, where we're willing to be open and honest enough to do life together, even in all of its messiness. As Kobe comes up and we enter into a time of response, I'd love for us to end today with a prayer together. Um, one of the things I don't think we do often enough in the church is pray out loud together. Um, so I thought today would be a really appropriate opportunity to do that. Um, so the words are going to be up on the screen, but let's close by raising up our voices in prayer together. God of truth and forgiveness, 